protests, we walking, raising awareness. Some of the injustice that we've been seeing is not okay. And as a young person, you gotta you gotta listen to our perspective. Our voices need to be heard. People are gonna look back. Our kids are gonna look back at this and say, "You were a part of that." I got a grandfather that marched next to Dr. King in the '60s, and he was amazing. He would be proud to see us all here. We gotta keep pushing forward. Sports are like the reward of a functional society. Sirius XM Sports presents Forward Progress, a weekly open conversation on race and sports in America. Here are your hosts, Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. Great to be back with you. It's Jackson and it's Morrison. Forward Progress continues to march in that very direction. And just a little bit, joined by former NBA star uh, and really now an amazing aficionado as it pertains to that bridge that we talk about so much, Kirk. Oh, yeah. Transitioning to the encore career. Charles Smith of the NBA uh, working hard in that area, leadership development, skills training, and so much. We'll talk with him about that in a little bit. Uh, we will stay with the orange leather, but not, <laughs> in, not, not in the same tone or tenor as the head coach of Creighton's men's basketball, Greg McDermott, uh, finds himself in a very challenging position at this point. Um, I, to lay it all out, if anybody missed it, um, I think it was on February 27th. Right. Uh, after a, a road loss, um, Coach McDermott was addressing his players. Uh, they had lost to Xavier, I believe. And um, he wanted to get across the message about everybody uh, staying together. They, they could see it as a potential fraying point in their season. And listen, coaches have their, their go-tos. They have... Uh, that inspirational vibe they try to find in these spots. Um, he missed it woefully. He missed it. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if he's feeling a great deal of pressure surrounding his job because of it. Uh, here's exactly what he said. Guys, we've got to stick together. We need both feet in. I need everybody to stay on the plantation. I can't have anybody leave the plantation. He says he immediately recognized the mistake, quickly addressed it, apologized to his student-athletes, staff, university president, his boss, the athletic director, and then spent you know, some time immediately after engaged in the university community, along with parents and so on and so forth, trying to find uh, the right ground. Um, I don't know the man. I mean, I, I barely know his son who plays in the league. I cover him during games, but I don't have a personal relationship. Um, so far, I haven't heard a lot of folks coming out the woodwork as, yeah, this is him. That's him. That's how he gets down with inane, ridiculous references to slavery and trying to keep us fired up around basketball. Right. Yep. Coaches are crazy people, Kirk. That's all I start there. Right? Yeah. They're crazy people. They take on a profession in which they barely enjoy their joy and they almost embody and take in their agony in ways that don't make any sense to me, but I enjoy covering them. <laughs> I enjoy watching them go through it. This is so off the rails, man. Like, even if I was his buddy, like his assistant coach, uh, who I'll bring up in just a moment as you get some opening thoughts on this, uh, is struggling with trying to find the right way forward, even though it looks like the student-athletes are, are trying to push forward and with forgiveness 
and, and focus on basketball. Yeah, this is a tough one, Jax. Um, I know immediately when I saw the story, I could not, uh, I couldn't believe it. I had to read it again. And then I had to read it again and say, no, he didn't. He didn't mean to say that. And yet when you read it again and I'm saying, how could you be so tone deaf? Especially in this time that we're in as a country uh, over the last year of what's been going on. And uh, actually, I do want to take this time to make sure that we talk about the trial for uh, of, of Derek Chauvin, the officer in Minnesota. That's something that just kind of came to mind because every time I'm seeing the, the George Floyd trial, I'm saying George Floyd is not on trial for what happened in Minnesota last year. Okay, it's not George Floyd on trial. Uh, on trial. Matters, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So that that just kind of came into my mind as we we're talking about this, because you mentioned it, Jack's terminology matters. What you're saying, it does matter. I go through this all the time. With my wife, sometimes she says, do you know what you just said? And I'm like, no, I don't mean we're just talking. She said, oh, well, just remember what you said. And so now she's trying to hold it against me that you said you were going to do this and you didn't do it. And I'm like, oh, but I was, I guess in the moment I said I would do it. And, but you have to watch your words. And even in moments of, 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 of excitement, of, of passion, of intensity, always understand where you're at. Also know what your audience is. Know the time that you're in. And like you said, I don't know Coach McDermott personally. I don't know. But... The thing is, this it missed the mark so bad because I'm a guy who I've loved a lot of the coaches that I've been around, Jackson. Coaches are motivators. They are the best coaches I've had are motivators. Now, there are some guys who are X's and O's and that was it. And, you know, you couldn't have a relationship with them or nothing like that at all. But there were some coaches who were motivators who tried to dig and, and dig deep inside of what you have inside of you and get the most out of you. That speech right there does not get the most out of me. That speech is when you're talking about plantation, brother, that's that, that's something that when I hear plantation, I know that, that that strikes a chord in me that gets me kind of ticked off. Like, come on, man. Change whips. <laughs> you say plantation, man. Come on, man. That, that's that's you missed the mark. And I get what you're trying to say. I know I had a coach who's always say this game is going to be about burning the boats, fellas. This game is about burning the boats. And when I say burn the boats is that we're going to get on this ship and we're going to go over there. And once we land, we're going to burn the boats because you know why? We're not leaving. We staying. We're taking over. We're not leaving. And, and that motivation got me so excited, man, because now you're like, I mean, we all got to be in. There is not one person that can say, no, I'm going to stay back and I'm going to watch the boats. No, we're going to burn the boats and we all going to be here together and embrace this opportunity, embrace this adversity. There's different ways he could have went about it. That one, Jackson, just, it just missed, missed the mark so bad that, look, I can say his past history does not say that this is who he is. And so I'm not saying that he'll get a pass. He's going to have to definitely, uh, you know, get, get the, um, the, I guess, the trust of his players, his university people back. Absolutely. This is one of those missteps that he's taken. I'm not going to condemn him. I understand that you you have to understand what you're saying. And, and you got to be so much different about how he went about this. Because honestly, it still makes me a little ticked off just to think that those words came out of his mouth. Creighton assistant uh, coach Terrence Rencher, who is black, 
issued a statement addressing McDermott's comments through, interestingly enough, Coaches for Action, a Big East group that tries to educate and bring awareness to players about social injustices. I think uh, there should be an offshoot uh, for coaches of action. It should be for themselves. And it shouldn't just be black assistants. As I so many times we coddle and uplift and put on a pedestal and don't hold accountable for and don't call into this enrichment and further learning the head coaches mm-hmm. that are at the forefront of these programs. Mm-hmm. And that if they would spend some quality time in groups such as Coaches for Action, uh, their, their tongue might be guided in the proper direction even in moments of peril and strife. But anyway, uh, Coach Rencher said uh, that he was deeply hurt by McDermott's words and said his focus now is supporting the Blue Jays players on any potential needs. He added that the team has opted to continue to chase its goals on the court this season with McDermott on the sidelines. So I guess there's been some internal dynamics that have been discussed and some bridges crossed. And in many ways, that's the primary thing that matters. But there is a secondary dynamic that's unacceptable here. In a university environment, particularly, where we're supposed to be growing and expanding these universal minds, utilizing critical thinking, decision-making. Good Lord, was this a problem. It's a lot. It's a lot. And the more and more that you kind of sit down and you kind of digest a little bit more and more, it's, it's, it's unacceptable. And now you put not only these players, you put your coaching staff, you, you put sort of the distractions now is apparent. It's apparent that in front of, or at this time right now, that instead of going after the goal, the obviously that was coach talk. Hey, we're going to still go after the goal of trying to win a you know NCAA tournament championship and all of that stuff. But obviously, this one strikes this strikes a little bit a little bit different because in, in your words of trying to motivate, uh, you brought back up something that we're trying to get past as a country old wounds that have been kind of reopened a little bit now for you to even have that on your mind is something that to me is it's still it's it's still one of those things that kind of have me i'm kind of shook by it you know because i know if a coach said it to me i would look at them and i would say like really coach and so he's going to have to do some things i think in the coming weeks months whatever it may be this isn't going to die down by no means because you, you just can't – I expect more from my coach than I would as a player. If a player said, you know, okay, we got to fix get, get this thing right for a kid. But with my coach, I, I, you, you can't do that. I'm going to keep an eye on this story for us, uh, Kirk, because do. remember for the last decade he's been at Creighton, but there was the time at Iowa State and Northern Iowa and, and North Dakota State and, you know, I'm not going to get into the demographics of those institutions or even those programs, uh, but oftentimes 
behavior is repeated and we'll learn about this being an isolated dynamic if we don't hear from other players coming down the road (laughs) um it'll be interesting to keep an eye on i got to we we only only because i want to see where does this go um because if i'm a player a young player on the creighton blue jays right now um i just want to play basketball i just want to be a student we're playing through a pandemic and now I have to answer questions about why my coach thought it would be appropriate to say that we're going to need everybody to stay on the plantation. I just just think about that sentence right there. It's just you can't do that. On the exact opposite end of that spectrum, a little bit later in the program, we will celebrate our friend uh, Renee Montgomery and this fantastic mm-hmm. benchmark uh, excellence that has uh, occurred in what was the ridiculousness of the leadership, or at least one portion of it, uh, of the Atlanta dream. But we'll take a quick break when we come back. All-time, just iconic NBA player and U.S. Olympian, Chris Charles, I should say, Smith will be with us. Uh, Charles is in a fantastic uh, endeavor in continuing to try to bridge that transition for athletes uh, transitioning to uh, that encore career, that next thing, to become that Morrison and so much more. We <laughs> <laughs> visit with Charles Smith. Stay right there on Forward Progress. You're listening to Forward Progress on Sirius XM Radio. We continue here on Forward Progress as advertised. A great opportunity to spend some time with 10-year NBA alum Charles Smith. Spent some time in Los Angeles and San Antonio and New York and has had some stops in uh, the post-career life, if you will, like to call it, (laughs) encore career after these wonderful sports runs and uh, finds himself now as a certified master facilitator for global leadership development and training uh, for Fierce Conversations, Inc. Tell us about Fierce Conversations, Inc., and how you find yourself in the position you're there and what you're you're trying to imprint. Well, I've had a... uh, I've had a a, a pretty good uh, corporate career thus far, and uh, I've been able to um, hold some significant titles at some major companies. And um, during this pandemic, uh, I was furloughed from a company called Mediacom, which is the largest media company in the world. And I was head of sports and entertainment for them. And uh, as I sat around uh, trying to figure out the next thing I was going to do, uh, I wasn't going to wait around for them to call me back. Um, I ended up receiving a, receiving a phone call from a uh, friend of mine that told me that this company was looking for someone uh, like me, uh, someone who uh, understood sports, understood um, the corporate world, um, and could uh, articulate and speak pretty much both languages. And when I when we spoke, uh, he told me that again he was looking for someone like me. But then he said uh, his exact words is like. You're, you're a hard find, you're a unicorn, and uh, we really like uh, your background, and we began to talk. And uh, the first two conversations, uh, I didn't talk any business with him, I just wanted to get to know him. So I, I wanted to understand who he was and build a relationship with him first. We did that for our first two phone calls, his name is Ed Beltran, and then um, it was a perfect fit. Uh, 
Fierce uh, Inc. is a company that uses 3D simulation and artificial intelligence that helps corporations uh, have those hard discussions, micro macro aggressions, uh, talk about race, uh, culture, um, you know, they even have a simulation called the angry black woman. You know, they have so many um, uh, situations that happen in corporate uh, that people don't necessarily talk about. And in today's state with, they deal with a lot of social injustice um, uh, and in the office and outside. So it's a great company that was looking for um, someone like me to talk about the sports side of things and to, and then to also help uh, their corporations who use effective communication to increase their bottom line. So, you know, what I found in corporations is that they talk about the team, but they have no clue of what team really is. And so I helped them with that uh, because there's no reason why a corporation can't build a dynasty just like a sports franchise can, but they don't under, they don't understand the dynamics or the key tools to be able to do that. And they needed someone who can articulate both sides to explain that and put it into 3D simulation using artificial intelligence. You know, Charles, for, for some people would meet you and say, wow, he's always been this way. He's always been this guy, um, this leader, you know, master motivator, things like that. But when did that light bulb go off for you? Was it as an active player? Was it as a in your post career? When was that light bulb that went off for you to kind of get into this space? Well, you know, I've always been into technology. Um, people don't know that uh, in the late 90s. I own a portfolio of patents. Uh, I was the first to um, do customizable edits for video ingestion, meaning I developed a portfolio of patents in Major League Baseball was my um, uh, anchor client. Wow. I would take any media feed, dice the, the content up in the segmented way, create a searchable engine that would enable that content to be redistributed and sold worldwide. And um, uh, those are patents that I still license today and still deal with. Uh, but when I finished playing, I always wanted to be in a industry where there was a constant flow of innovation and money. Um, at that time, technology was it. And uh, I got into it uh, maybe just about a year before I finished playing. And I had an opportunity to go to Italy um, to play and I turned that down and I wanted to stick with what I was doing business wise because I felt if I went to Italy, I'd play what another one, two years and then I have to come back and start all over again. So I just stuck with it. And I had some really great mentors, um, that were educating me and I just kind of wrote it out. No one heard from me like for about a good six, seven years after I finished playing. Charles Smith with us here on forward progress. You knew, or at least had a vibe of where you wanted to go after you were done playing. I was really fortunate, like you, in a different way, in that knowing going into college, I want to cover sports. I don't just want to be on television. I know exactly where I wanted to go. That's not everyone's blessing. So what has been your mentoring for the transition for fellow athletes when they don't have a beacon that they can look to for what's next after after the game. 
Well, um, growing up, I was always a, uh, I was always an entrepreneur. I, I uh, from the time that I had a, uh, a paper route at age 12, uh, I worked <laughs> in grocery stores, uh, sporting goods store. Uh, when I first went to university of Pittsburgh, I worked, uh, at a, for a construction company. I was a laborer, uh, my, first year in Pittsburgh that summer before school started and I was in an accounting firm. So I've always worked. Um, so I had that background and that ethic. What people don't know is while I played in the NBA, I had a successful marketing company. I did contracts for players while I played. Um, um, I did the first uh, sponsorship um, for the New York Knicks with Perry Ellis that were on our seat backs on the back of our seats. Um, it was nobody beats the whiz. I did the contracts for our team because I met the owner and he didn't want to deal with agents. He dealt directly with me and I got the players. We did contracts. I did those contracts. I actually did a player's contract, Eric Mobley, while I played. So I always did things behind the scenes. Um, and I was always active in business and entrepreneurship. The key change in the indicator, as you said, this beacon, um, my last four years when I played, I started going to uh, conferences. Um, and what enticed me to do it, I was sitting with Frank Borges at that time was the treasurer for the state of Connecticut. And I'm sitting in his office and I'm listening to him talk about moving hundreds of million dollars through pension funds. And when he got off the phone, I was like, Frank, where does that money come from? And I mean, who are you? Who's getting this money? What were you talking about? And when he told me, it opened my mind to a whole nother world of capital because I never heard anyone have those conversations. Nevertheless, a person of color having those conversations. So I started going to, going to the Black Enterprise um, Entrepreneurs Conference, the Black Enterprise Golf and Tennis Conference, and I met all these black executives. And I can remember walking we were, before we were playing golf, an executive asked me, said, Charles, you know, you, you NBA players, why do you guys invest in liquor stores and barbershops and, and, and those sorts of things? And as I was walking, I didn't have an answer for him, but I thought about it. By the time the golf tournament was over, I went back to him and said, that's because that's the only thing a lot of our brothers are exposed to. And I had a mentor, Percy Sutton, who was the owner of 98.7 radio station in New York, and Dr. Khalid Al-Mansour, who was the business advisor and business partner to one of the richest men in the world, Prince Awali. And I traveled with these gentlemen, and they put me in meetings and rooms with various people around the world and I got an education like you wouldn't get anywhere else that you couldn't get in school. And so that was those, those two individuals really put me on a path of an education um, that you just couldn't get anywhere else. You know, Charles, what challenges do you see now, though, with the men of color, black athletes, not just in the NBA, but NFL, just around in terms of getting that mindset early on, where it seems that you had already had it and you continued on. And it, obviously, we see where you're at now, but it seems that guys are interested, but they don't know how to start. How do they start? 
Well, you mentioned a key word. You said mindset. Right. I didn't have the mindset. Mm. I had the thirst, but I didn't have the mindset. Yeah, talk about that. What's the difference between the thirst and the mindset? Well, I, I, want, I had a thirst for knowledge. Mm. Um, I had a thirst. So I wanted to be an executive. Uh, but it took me time to understand that everything that I learned to be a professional athlete um, was the actually the opposite of what I needed after retirement yeah. and to be an entrepreneur and to actually make it into corporate America. The only tools that I could say I, got, I had from being an athlete is understanding team, my hard work and my diligence, my perseverance. Um, but after that, zero. It was zero because I had to change. I had to literally change. Wow. And that change in itself took years, years, years of a commitment. So my biggest challenge was me. I was fighting myself. I was fighting a mindset that needed to change. Um, and it was tough. It was very, it was very difficult. It was very challenging because, you know, think about it. It took me 10 years to become an NBA player. Right. And 20 years to land my first, my first corporate job. I'm not talking about being an entrepreneur. I'm not talking about that. That's different. I was an entrepreneur and I had sex success there. I'm talking about going to an environment where you have to serve, you have to lead, you have to participate, and you're competing against someone that you don't know and you don't know what they're doing. Meaning I can look at, I can stand in front of you two guys and, and size you up and go compete and win in sports. But when I walk through those hollow halls of corporate America and somebody stabs me in my back and I don't feel it till the next day and I don't know who did it, that's a different scenario. That's a whole different ball game. And you have to learn to play that game. You have to learn to understand the culture, the business within the business, just like in, in sports. Learn the game within the game. And they say, by the time you understand the game in sports, you're out. You're retired. So it's that. So I, I had nothing. It was, uh, I had to start from scratch. Played 10 years in the National Basketball Association. Spent some time with the Players Association, other organizations. Now with Fierce Conversations, certified master facilitator, Charles Smith was here on Forward Progress. You touched on something that is so key. I want, to take you a little, I want you to take us a little bit deeper on this idea of organizations struggling with being teams. Mm -hmm. You can find it sometimes in team organizations that there is on, let's say on the football or basketball or baseball side, a mentality that's not necessarily shared on the business side and vice versa. And right. there can, there's, there's a straddling space there that, that never connects. What do you find in, in, in these corporate conversations, the largest struggles, I'm sure there's more than one, of truly trying to embody the humility, the sacrifice, the, 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 the togetherness that's necessary to be a true team? Well, it's first, it's the, the first dynamic is the communication. And that's what Fierce is all about. And that's why I love Fierce. Look, Fierce has changed my life. Um, my, 
relationships and business, people have seen a change and I know how to deal with relationships better in business, my family, my children. It's all about the communication. It's those hard discussions that people don't want to have, that they avoid. But when you avoid having hard discussions, you're destined for a negative impact if you don't have the discussion. If you have the discussion, you give yourself an opportunity for a positive impact. So in business and in corporations and sports, we don't have the hard discussions. When, when I played in the NBA, I wish looking back now, I would have had that hard discussion with Pat Ryan. I would have had that hard discussion with Larry Brown or Don Nelson on how they were either dealing with me, things that I saw that I knew could have had a positive impact on the team. And I just didn't have it, have it because of either my ego or my emotion, or I thought he might not be receptive, whatever it is, but I let it go by. We let it go by. So corporations struggle because when you have employees, there's been studies done where 73% of employees don't trust their boss, right? If you had 73% of the players on the team that don't trust their coach, how are you going to win? You can't, you know? So it's the effective communication that levels the playing field. It's understanding how to deal with confrontation. Um, it's understanding the, the dynamics of, of uh, intercultural relationships. You know, you don't want to tell jokes a lot around internationals and people from other countries because you would be offending them and you have no idea that you're offending them, right? So all these things happen in corporate and on teams. And so what I've learned, I understand now how to help players engage better with one another through communication, how to help coaches engage with players, how to help organizations deal with players better so that they can all generate additional revenue together. How many times you've been with community relations, a player goes out, does some things, and he got an HR issue on his hand because he said something to a fan or, or to a, a, a person in the office and all these things happen. Right. Because you don't know. You don't know what you don't know. So you have these conversations, and that's what I learned. So these organizations, when it comes to team, they talk about it, but it starts from the top. A lot of executives are, have a selfish mindset. When it comes to money, they want it all. They don't want to share, you know, and then you have these employees who are doing all the work and they're getting not, not getting noticed for it, but people are taking their work and claiming it and saying they did. You know, you got all these things that happen, but it, it goes on and on. But we found solutions and the things that I've been able to um, help Fierce with and the things that Fierce is already doing, uh, they're great at what they do worldwide. And that's why they have over 250 blue chip companies that they work with. Uh, what is kind of, I, I would say more nerve wracking, um, going out of the tunnel and playing in, in Madison square garden or sitting and leading a corporate meeting. I would say what's more nerve wracking is trying to understand a corporate culture that you go into. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's double trouble. And I'll, I'll put it to you this way. I had a great sports career. So imagine me, 6'10", 
walking into a corporation that has a brand behind the name, uh, my name, and dealing with a CEO that has an ego. And when you're walking, somebody sees you first and shakes your hand before the CEO. And the CEO's upset, right? Or when I walk into a room um, and I go to, before I sit down, people recognize me and they, they, it just throws them off. And the conversation shifts and changes or it's not online what the executives want it to be. And I have to try to suppress that. So I had to learn to go into the room first. Mm -hmm. Not only be in the room first, but take my chair and put it all the way down to the floor so that they can be a little higher than me. I had to go through all these different things and these tools to make people feel comfortable around me. I spend 75% of the time having people feel comfortable around me and 25% of my time doing work. Mm -hmm. So it's a different dynamic. So again, to answer your question, that's, that was, that was challenging. Well, just going to work every day and, and dealing with that, you know, and um, people feeling, well, you had your career, you made money, what are you doing here? And then you're trying to tell me what to do. You know, it's, it's, it was a lot. So, <laughs> you know, now going into a tunnel, yeah. uh, seasoned and knowing that I can play and go out there and do what I, hey, I take that any day. <laughs> then not knowing what I'm dealing with and trying to make it work for me every day is stressful. Stressful. So, last thing for me. So I, I can only imagine what it's like right now, Charles, that the actual because I look at you and I always see New York Knicks. I see New York across your chest. So with the Knicks winning right now, obviously those conversations, probably when you walk into a room, they see you. Hey, man, what about them Knicks, Charles? I, I know them questions are coming. Right. And you and you learn how to deal with that and you learn how to keep things on pace and you learn how to transition. But that's what I'm saying. When I say to you, mm -hmm. I had to, if I had to change. That's what I'm talking about. There's so many things that and it's not to say that athletes cannot transition. Uh, athletes do transition. Right. Um, there are a lot of athletes that are, that I've run into across the country in all sports that are doing really well. Are they billionaires, millionaires and you know, uh, worth a hundred million? No, but that's what society has put on athletes. If you're not making money and a lot of money, then you're less as successful after your career is over. And that's wrong. That's where the narrative has to change because at the end of the day, you don't go to a professor or you don't see the top 10 richest professors in, in some article or some magazine a professor becomes an expert at what they do. So if a athlete is in media, if an athlete is in community relations or whatever they're doing, they're doing it well and they're successful at it. Period. End of story. Charles, we appreciate the time. We thank you so much for the insight from 10 years in the association. Now to certified master facilitator at Fierce Conversations. We'll hope that you'll come back and join us sometime. Anytime. It was great being here. And thank you guys for having me. We appreciate it. Yeah. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we discuss Georgia once again, making changes we did not anticipate, but fully embrace as we continue on Forward Progress. You're listening to Sirius XM Radio. 
We now return to Forward Progress. Here's Jason Jackson and Kurt Morrison. What great news it is that the WNBA and the NBA Board of Governors unanimously approved the sale of the Atlanta Dream to a three-member investor group headlined, all due respect to all the big money out there, all right, but headlined by our friend, Renee Montgomery, who, when we were having conversations about unrest during the summer, was good enough to join us on our roundtables. When we started Forward Progress, was yeah. great to come back. Man, has been here a couple other times, and I hope now, with all this big money now, you know, <laughs> hang out with us. But um, this is something else, Kurt. Yeah. She went out on a limb to opt out of the WNBA season to focus on racial justice and yeah. equality. And the backswing of this is less than a year later, she owns the team she used to play for. Come on. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. I think that's what every athlete wants too, though, right? The, the team that you are with or you, you hold close to your heart to be able to be an owner um, of that team, part owner, whatever it may be. I mean, that's on her resume. That's her title. And to kind of hear that, I mean, that's something special too. And it gives aspirations this is this is big though because it's not just about her race you know being an african-american black woman it's not just her being a woman in general right it's just her realizing an opportunity and, and going for it man i mean that's that to me is, is so inspirational for so many folks you think about so much stuff that has changed in in georgia it, it unfortunately starts last summer with then co-owner and appointed U.S. Senator Correctly Loeffler, who decided, let me go for the red meat of the base. Right. I'm going to oppose the social justice messaging of the WNBA. That's, that'll do it. Yeah. And then her whole team and then the whole league spun around and made it clear that that was not acceptable. Correct. And then they backed her opponent twice. <laughs> <laughs> and he's the United States Senator from Georgia. Now. Uh, that, this, is, this is what... You want in this transference of platform, this idea that you can do more if you choose to, if you want to take on this, this burden and responsibility of at the very least just encouraging and empowering people to go out and have their voice heard. Right. And how much energy that can put in to you by putting that positive stuff out. This, this is like jet fuel, man. No, it is. I mean, I guess, you know, just to see where it first started from, right? You know, when she came on with us, like you mentioned, the infancy stages of the Forward Progress show, the podcast, the on-demand show here on SiriusXM. But you can kind of hear in her voice the, the passion of not only the, I guess, the opportunity that she saw and what the WNBA and women in general were like, this is our time. We got to push through this. And to come out of this being a part owner of a franchise, I mean, that to me, it kind of shows you just how powerful uh, some of these voices are. But then to show the political side of it too, and orchestrating and helping people who want to get involved because i remember that conversation and i remember asking her just for so many people who want to get involved how do they get involved and she was just like look you, you got to figure it out like we're we gonna help you we can help you but 
there's different forms of or ways to help, whether it's in your community, whether it's uh, you know online, whatever it may be, using your 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 social platform, whatever it may be. But just know that people are listening and they utilize that opportunity. And a lot of it was because of the people who she was around. Like you said, opting out of playing basketball to further the movement, man. That's that that in itself is just historic. Yeah. And and Montgomery becomes the very first former player to be an owner and an executive of a WNB dream. She she already got a t-shirt that rolled right out her mouth, by the way. <laughs> My dream has come yeah. true. I mean, come on now. They there it is. Put that on sticker, <laughs> billboard, t-shirt. You got to copyright uh, that one. Get it. Get yeah, it. no, this, this is beautiful. Uh, a quote from her, breaking barriers for minorities and women by being the first former WNBA player to have both a stake and ownership and leadership role with the team is an opportunity that I, I take very seriously. I invite you to join me as the dream builds momentum in Atlanta. I don't know if they're going to have a better spokesperson <laughs> or, or maybe even have one. Uh, and, and it's interesting because you think about your power platform presence as right. a player, uh, but this has longevity here. This goes beyond what your body can take, right? This is something that uh, can can be something that's decades in the making. And she's already put in the work too, though. Yeah. So she understands not only what the players are thinking, what they need, what they know, but then she also has been on the front lines as well in, in, in what the, the community needs. Right. How, how do we help out our community? I think that's one of the things that we see from time to time is that people get into this position of power and it's OK, I'm focusing on the business side of it. But I think there's a social element to this that she fits as well. And so she checks a lot of boxes that I hopefully this can, you know, we see more of this in other sports as well. And before we get out of here, a, a word about uh, Pioneer in our space. Um, Irv Cross uh, lived a long and pioneering life. Uh, yeah. First blast, black network TV sports analyst after playing uh, DB in the National Football League, went to CBS Sports, and uh, one of those iconic uh, pregame shows, in-game shows, uh, before everybody was gaga over uh, inside the <laughs> yeah. it was the NFL Today uh, on CBS with Brett and the crew, and... Uh, of Cross was a very important part of that. Um, your memories, your recollections, sir. Well, I think just just seeing the, the videos and uh, the, the the name, the face. Um, you know, I me mean, for me, like when you grow up and you see certain guys on television and they look like me or they look like my uncle or my grandfather. You know what I'm saying? Like you, you, you kind of listen to him a little bit more because he kind of looks like the people who I know. And Irv Cross was that, right? You know, he kind of gave the first, that the, the next generation of broadcasters hope that, hey, you you can do this as well. And, you know, now I look at the James Brown on CBS now. I look at Kurt Menefee over at Fox, you know what I mean? I look at some of the, the hosts now of the pregame show, and I can't, it, it's hard not to think back to Irv being one of the first pioneers to to uh, to have that seat, and to show that, hey, we can do a damn good job, too. And you see that 
as we've you know now approached 20 now now we're in 2021 and it's still one of the most successful shows when it comes to football right it's that pregame show it's what leads you up to the game day and him being a part of that and being again we just talked about renee but a former player who understood that space but i think herb also understood his just place in in being a black man that had to carry himself differently right look differently um but he was he was he was studious he was you know had the the, the, the swagger the nice cut you know what i mean like everything yeah. about him that i remember was uh was something that you know what man that'd be pretty cool to to hold that microphone with that blazer on you know one day yeah man you found your way to it didn't you no, it took me there. <laughs> oh, man. He was the eighth of, of 15 children. Yeah, the middle. How are you the eighth? That, that's a middle child. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's, the, that's back in the day, dog. Yeah, man. He's in the early 40s, right? That he's, yeah. he's uh, finding his way and using a great game of football to, to elevate and come out of a space which was tough. Uh, apparently a tough uh, upbringing with his father who he admitted was a heavy drinker and it, it choked him up to, to to his dying day about how challenging that space was but uh, man he was able to, to persevere through football and high school and college and, and obviously uh, a professional career that led to an entirely uh, unpaved road yeah, that was not a space. No, uh, until it wasn't. Then in, I guess that was 1975, which still, in many ways, seems ridiculous. It also seems like, oh my goodness, that was the time to break through. But at the same time, it's what he once started is still holding strong today, right? right. When I turn on those pregame shows in the mornings, I'm flicking different channels, and and it's, I'm still seeing similar type faces. So the the job that he did definitely kind of he held the torch for the next generation. And I think that's why it's such a joy to uh, celebrate him um, and his successes and that 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 legacy that he's left is still going. Yeah, what a pioneering space uh, at CBS with him and Phyllis George and Brett Musburger, and he was even tied to Jimmy the Greek when it was time for Jimmy to go. Uh, yeah. he, he, he said, that's not the man I know. When that man sat on that set, talk about how black folks were bred from slavery. Mm -hmm. And that was why they were superior athletes. And uh, Irv could have dropped a leg on him, uh, but, <laughs> but instead said, quote, that, that doesn't reflect the Jimmy, the Greek I know, and I've known him for almost 13 years. It's kindness, kindness right. in a space where that wasn't entirely necessary, particularly for a man that knows full well how difficult it is to get beyond those those archaic Neanderthal images mm -hmm. of black excellence. That being said, may he rest in peace. Yeah, absolutely, man. Rest in peace, Herb Cross. And, you know, it's been, it's been tough. You know, we've lost some other colleagues as well. You know, I know Sekou Smith, a guy who you know very well, is also too, just a lot of broadcasters and, 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 and people who write. I know all the terrain Paler passed away as well, uh, a writer for Yahoo. So it's hard for me seeing so so much great talent and guys who I kind of look up to in this business go far too soon. That being said, Kirk, another great week. We appreciate it. We thank Charles Smith for swinging by. So on behalf of our producer, Pernell Brown, and Kirk Morrison, I'm Jason Jackson. Thanks for tuning in to Forward Progress. We'll talk to you next time.